I want to invite up our retreat speaker, David Bailey. Uh, where, where is, there he is, right way at the back. Uh, David is, uh, was here this uh, weekend with us. We've gotten to know him a little bit better. David is the chief visionary officer, chief vision officer, and founder of an organization called Erebon that works with churches and communities to help them become reconciling communities, uh, uh, hearing God's call to be communities of reconciliation in a estranged and alienated world. And um, David is married to Joy. He lives in Richmond, Virginia. They have no children, but many, many nieces and nephews is what I understand. Yeah? Uh, ten. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that is a lot. Um, uh, what I loved about uh, David is that there's a lot of thoughtfulness and care and a real gentleness into what he has to say. And especially as we, he leads us and wades into waters that are sometimes heavy or fraught, there's just this real peace about him. And so I know that what he has to share will bless us this morning. As is our custom, I want to encourage you to extend a hand with me as we pray for David and pray for the Lord's anointing as he preaches. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your spirit, and the gift of David to your people, to your church, and to us specifically this morning. And we ask now that you would work through these gifts to serve your purposes in our lives. We long to hear from you. We long to walk with you and for our lives to be patterned after you and your ways. Would your Holy Spirit now anoint David and would he preach and speak with a sense of your deep delight in him, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, it has been a delight to be with you all uh, over this week. It's a very uh, lovely community of people. And so I would definitely encourage you to uh, not take this for granted because um, there's some rough churches out there in these streets. And so I hope you uh, don't take it for granted. Uh, like I said, I lead a ministry called Erebon, and uh, we're just really glad. The word Erebon is a Greek word that means a foretaste of things to come. And, and the way it's used in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is given to the church as a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And so we just believe that the church ought to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God to the world. You know? And so, you know, uh, parenting can be very difficult, uh, particularly uh, during the pandemic where uh, you didn't get a chance to have a break. And I know early on uh, and during the pandemic, there were like folks that, you know, um, there was this meme that was around and they were like, when I, when the pandemic first happened, uh, I decided to take this opportunity to be a monk. And then uh, I was like, let me start uh, working out. And so I decided to uh, uh, be a hunk, but then in reality, I became a chunk. <laughs> and so I... <laughs> You know, uh, and then like some folks really try to kind of also get some like routines going on in their world where they like, particularly amongst the kids. And um, there was this mother that and father said, like, you know, let's 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 actually like kind of keep this routine. There was this routine that every Saturday they would have a pancake um, breakfast. And so mom would fix pancakes for the kids and, and the two brothers, Timmy and Johnny, they uh, would, uh, uh, you know, do what brothers do because there was this rule where whoever got pancakes first last week got served pancakes first the following week. So doing what brothers do, they started to argue. And it was like, Johnny, you got pancakes first last week. It's my turn to get pancakes first this week. And then uh, Timmy said, no, it's, it was you got pancakes first last week. It's my turn to get pancakes first 
this week. And the godly Christian mother that she was, she said, man, this is a great opportunity for discipleship. So she says, boys, if you want to be like Jesus, then you would let your brother get pancakes first. And so Johnny turns to Timmy and says, how about you be Jesus this week? (laughs) Would you turn to your neighbor and say, would you be like Jesus this week? Oh, y'all didn't grow up in a Pentecostal church, you know? (laughs) Now I was saying that like, you know, preaching is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. So, you know, it's a little bad. So turn to your neighbors and say, would you be like Jesus this week? You know, isn't it kind of interesting that when it comes to conflict, we want other people to be like Jesus. And we live in a time right now where there is so much, so much polarization and, and the problem was with those people on the other side. And at the end of the day, there's a form of fundamentalism where there's a, a level of purity from my own idea that I don't want the other person to even exist. And what's challenging, particularly when Christians get in this level of dialogue and this kind of level, of, it's not even a dialogue, this level of, of fighting, then what ends up happening is, is that we end up saying, hey, would you be like Jesus instead of we be like Jesus? There was this cultural, uh, uh, this cultural critic that wrote this. He said, but the judgment of God is upon the people. The judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Just by show of hands, has anybody seen that? Does anybody have an idea who said that? This was Dr. Martin Luther King in his 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail. You would have thought this was something that was written to the Atlantic or the New York uh, uh, Times last week. And this capturing of the early spirit of the early church is something that we could capture in this notion of being a reconciling community. You know, at Airbond, we define a reconciling community as a group of people linked by a common purpose and rhythm of life together who acknowledges the death of brokenness in their world and actively receives the invitation from God to heal the brokenness of this world holistically from the inside out. And this is what we see here in the book of Acts and Acts 2, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone has was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the court, the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to that number daily those who were being saved. Yeah, I think we can learn a lot about how to be a reconciling community by looking at the early church. There are three themes I see here. They were 
faithful fanatics, they were fearless freedom fighters, and they were focused family members. Would y'all repeat that with me? They were faithful fanatics, fearless freedom fighters, and focused family members. All right, let's just say it one more time like you believe it. Faithful fanatics, fearless freedom fighters, and focused family members. Now, we are in the midst of football season and basketball season. I know we have some Canadians here, so even hockey season is going to happen at some point. But I didn't, it's on now. Okay, that's great. So, like, clearly I'm not a faithful fanatic of hockey, right? <laughs> but do we have any faithful fanatic of football fans in here? No football fans. Wow. This is Texas. Oh, shock congregation. I was like to say, y'all will have to turn your Texas card in in a minute. <laughs> but you know, basketball fans, you're like, when you're a faithful fanatic of sports, you like show up faithfully and pay attention to what your team is doing. Now, I realize that everybody might not necessarily be a faithful fanatic of sports, but you know, any um, fans of like the Gilmore Girls in the house? Okay, I saw some energy there, right? <laughs> Like, so they, they went out, out, you know, out of season for many years, and when Netflix did that kind of, like, reboot, folks were like, I got to see what, 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 what Rory's up to. And, you know, I remember the last season hearing about the um, this TV show, The Game of Thrones. Any fans? You're in church. Don't confess. All right. <laughs> but I, I, I never saw it myself, but I heard that, you know, Folks like would orient their life around trying to make sure that they could catch the last season of Game of Thrones. What are Christians in the United States known for being faithful fanatics of? There is this book that came out in I Call on Christian by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And, and they did some research and they uh, uh, realized that Christians were known for, one, what they were against, and two, their political persuasion. But in reality, we ought to be known for being faithful fanatics of Jesus. Like, and that should be the only thing that we should be known for. And when we aren't known for being faithful fanatics of Jesus, we have to, to ask some questions. And what does it look like to be a faithful fanatic of Jesus? It means they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So you're spending time in the Word and to fellowship, and you're doing like what you did yesterday, hanging out with one another, breaking bread together, but then also prayer. And along with prayer is fasting. And, and we're not just those like Sunday Christians or even at worst those like Clark Kent Christians. You know, Superman's, uh, 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 um, you know, alter ego identity where, where you kind of like, uh, you go to the closet and you come out and you're like a different person and you go to your job and they'd be like, oh, those people are Christians? I had no idea. We're called to be faithful fanatics and, and this happens from our interior life, from the inside out. So they were faithful fanatics of Jesus and because of them being faithful fanatics of Jesus, they were Fearless freedom fighters. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. See, when you read this text, it's really easy to, to, to impose our 21st century context into this text. 
if you had property in the Roman Empire, it's like the equivalent of having a really fat for 401k or a really tight uh, uh, um, retirement plan. And so it's not like the fact that like if, if I, you know, I mean, I have a house and Peter has a home and we said, hey, I want to move to Austin. He wants to move to Richmond. We could just sell our property and it's fine. But that's not the way it was in the first century church. I mean, in the first century of Rome. If you had property, you were set. And this is like when, you, when, when they say like they sold their homes, it was like they emptied out their 401ks so that everybody in the community could have what they need. You know, I have this really interesting life where I could just be in these um, really peculiar places from time to time. And my wife and I got invited one time to uh, hang out at this plantation in South Carolina. And there's a few reasons why I'm like hanging out at plantations in South Carolina, right? (laughs) And we got invited to be on this uh, plantation in South Carolina because we... um, there was a friend of ours who was like reading this text, text X2. She was a Christian, and uh, we, we've been in, in, in community together for a really long time. And she was reading X2 and X4, how, how basically folks divested themselves of, of their, their, their homes and in order so everybody had needs. And, and we live in a very under-resourced community. And she realized, she says, you know what? I've inherited a quarter of a million dollars just because I'm somebody's child. I'm actually somebody's grandchild, so I've actually like inherited a quarter million dollars. And I just feel like an invitation, like out of being a faithful fanatic of Jesus, like, like I don't need all of this in order to, to, to do, um, my family will be taken care of, my, my husband's a doctor, we live way below our means, you know, our Kids are going to be fine, and, and, and most likely we'll probably receive inheritance from our grandfather passes. And so what I like to do is she got a couple of other um, friends who we've been in a journey together and said, hey, what I would like to do is I would like to uh, almost like start like a family trust and lay this at y'all's feet and discern um, how can we give this money in a way to some people who inherited a lot of obstacles in their life because of what it meant to be black and rich men over the generations in this particular neighborhood. This woman, you know, gave this money and literally we spent some years just discerning, like what does this look like to to engage in some empowerment, not because of like somebody was telling her that she ought to do it, but because of what the work of the spirit was doing in her life and really uh, um, helping to see her, her redefinition of family. And like literally this week, we are giving out almost about $200,000 of money to about 36 people who are going to have like transformative funding to people to kind of help them move them to a different space in their socioeconomic situation. And it's interesting, too, because, like, when, when folks kind of put in the applications and things of that nature, like, it wasn't they needed $100,000. You know, there was this, this man who uh, um, does a 
was just in a really unfortunate situation and just spent a lot of time in his record. He needed people to pay off his court fines and help him with his down payment on his truck. And he gets his truck to be able to do a business for himself because he can't get employed. And these are just like, I mean, there's tons and tons of stories. I could spend the rest of the sermon telling these really amazing stories, but this is just one person who is a fearless freedom fighter because of her faithful fanaticism of Jesus. One of my heroes is a guy named Don Flo, who uh, is down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And, and, and uh, Don, um, he went to the University of Virginia, um, and he said, Dad, I want to come back because um, he is a guy that had his, his father owned a car dealership. And he said, Dad, what I want to do is I want to actually work every single job that everybody in this uh, employment, from, from being like the janitor to the mechanic, and he's not a great mechanic, to the accountant, to all the way to every job that you have. And I want to do that as almost like an apprenticeship at every level. And then I want to go to uh, a seminary out in Vancouver at Regent uh, Seminary, and I want to get the same theological degree that pastors get, and then I want to come back and because he knew he was going to take over the company. And so he wanted to use these biblical principles. And one of the things he began to kind of see is that he was like, you know what? We need to prioritize caring for the least of these. And so in his company, if you have $70,000 or less, then you have the most amount of benefits in the company. The more cash you have, the less amount of benefits you have. You just have to manage your money a lot better. And, and, and I mean, there's all types of stuff like, Everybody in their company um, has the ability to be able to send their kids to college and to change uh, just the, their financial situations. And this company grew to be a $2 billion company. When I met him, he sent this private plane down uh, to Richmond. Some friends and I have come and spend a day with him. And he's doing fine. <laughs> Last time I'm going to tell you about my friends, uh, Oye and Chris Waddell, who grew up in South Central um, L.A., they grew up in the hood, and um, they were able, you know, Oye went to um, uh, play Division I football, and Chris, you know, is, uh, uh, went to college. And, and while they were there, they noticed that the guys on the street corner, uh, while they were in South Central L.A., they noticed that the, the guys on the street corner they were like running small little corporations. They realized that they didn't have as many economic opportunities and, and for, for certain specific reasons, Oye and Chris, like they were able to kind of like go to college, but these guys didn't have those same type of opportunities and options. And so what they did is they created this company called, uh, a nonprofit called Hustle Phoenix, where it's like a business accelerator for folks who don't have access to the same kind of college business, uh, MBAs and things of that nature. And they use it as a discipleship process also. And they are redeeming hustling. These are fearless freedom fighters because they are all faithful fanatics of Jesus. And when you're a faithful fanatic of Jesus, you, you don't just only concern about you and yours and your family. But you, your family gets redefined and you become a focused family member for other people. It crosses 
economic lines and racial and ethnic lines and, and political lines and all different types of lines. And it says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with gladness to see hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, in order for you to really, really, really understand this particular text, you've got to kind of back up and understand a little bit about the miracle of Pentecost. After Jesus was uh, resurrected and he was explaining how the scriptures were witnessing about him and how he is the fulfillment of the Messiah, and the disciples were a group of Jewish people, and they, they knew that, okay, Jesus is now the Messiah, so they asked Jesus, said, Jesus, when are you going to make Israel great again? There's only one person that got that one, but like, you get on the way home, but you know, They're asking the question, when are you going to make my people great again? Like, we aren't where we used to be. And then Jesus says, you know what? I do care about your people. But your people aren't my only people. I'm here for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And and you know what? I can't even explain it to you. So what I want you to do is go to Jerusalem. And I want you to to, to spend some time in prayer, and I'm going to give you power to proclaim my good news in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the world. So what God does in God's providence is bring people from all of the different known countries and the places around the world as they knew at that time. You had folks from Africa. You had Arabs amongst Jewish people. You had uh, uh, people from Asia and folks from Europe. They were all together in this upper room, this 120 folks, and they were praying, and then the Holy Spirit came down, and, and, and they started to speak, and they saw tongues of fire. And I grew up as a Pentecostal, and, and we saw the miracle of Pentecost was about speaking, that we could speak in tongues, And I'm all about that. But that's not the miracle of Pentecost. What the miracle of Pentecost is not that people were speaking different. The miracle of Pentecost was people that were hearing different. They were people who could speak their different languages and yet still hear what God was doing for the glory of God. See, unity and diversity is a move of the Spirit. Unity through assimilation is the move of the world. To have people all from different tribes, every tongue, and languages, to be able to speak their own language, to be who, uh, how God is shaped and how they reflect the image of God and still understand one another is a work of the Spirit. So you might be asking the question, what does that look like within our church? And I'll just close on this last story. Uh, I got a good friend of mine, uh, Chris, who, uh, Lee, who he, he and I uh, went to college together, and he was um, an art major, uh, African-American Christian uh, uh, man, and, uh, and we both were actually really involved in urban ministry. At different churches, been in urban ministry, and, um, and so we just were hanging out all the time. He was an art major, I was a music major, 
We both loved Jesus. We both interested in ministry. And uh, we were hanging out. And like college just wasn't like the thing that was really working well for him. So what Chris decided to do was he went to the military. And he went up to uh, New Jersey, spent some time in the military. And he met this really um, beautiful woman. And like within like three to six months, I can't remember. It was a really short period of time. They decided to get married. And Kim is actually from... Uh, South Korea. So she came when she was about 10 years old. She immigrated from South Korea and she calls her family home and she says, you know, um, I love, I really like fell in love with this guy. We would love to get married. And, um, um, you know, they're like, oh, so tell me about him. His name's Chris Lee. He said, oh, you're marrying a Lee? That's great. That's great. Send us a picture. So they send a picture. They're like, he's no Lee. Like, it's a whole different definition of what Lee meant, right? Because of their social location and their particular context, Lee meant something different. And then because he was a southerner from Virginia, Lee meant something different. And as they came together, you see in their household is this, like, blend of Korean culture and African-American culture, Southern culture, and this kind of new family. And so you see this, like, what does the fruit of a reconciling community look like? It looks like this. You have these three beautiful daughters. And so you might be asking, David, what's the point of your sermon? Make babies. (laughs) (laughs) But in many ways, it's like, Yes, and I mean, you, by, 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 by looking at this congregation, you didn't need that lesson. But, I mean, <laughs> but literally, like, but what does the fruit look like as you all be more people who are faithful for the acts of Jesus? That you all be more fearless freedom fighters. You just don't only think about your nuclear family, but you think about folks that you buy looking on a piece of paper you shouldn't be thinking about. And there's a redefining of family where you become focused family members. And you'd be more of a foretaste of the kingdom of God. What happens when you have children, that's a miracle that God does. And you don't know what it looks like, but at the end of the day, it's something beautiful that only God can do. And so that's what I want to leave you all with this day. Let us pray. God, I just thank you so much uh, for Church of the Cross, Austin, this beautiful um, part of the family of God. Lord, I do pray that the seeds um, of this weekend that were sown about being a reconciling community that would encourage folks to say, hey, what does it look like to not just Think about it for a week or a few months or even a year. What looks like if we just kind of like go after this with a steady faithfulness of sowing and, and watering and gardening for like 10 years? Doing this, this thing of like really going after being a reconciled community and a long obedience in the same direction. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just speak to each person. If there's any condemnation that anybody might be feeling, that, Lord, you would, um, by your spirit, rebuke that and help them get it out and release it. But, but to hear what your invitation from the spirit is.
Thank you, Lord, for your work and what you're doing. Thank you for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people say, amen.